0: better work. Okay, so we saw that uh, in the first session. Our faith is is not in a thing or a set of ideas. Our faith is in God. The triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Second session, uh, we saw, we talked about the Father. We saw that the Father is the Almighty. Father, the creator of heaven and earth. Uh, we talked about how we as, human that says, humanity, Of creation, the only creatures to be made in his image, to reflect God's character in the way that we live. The way that's expressed to big ideas uh, is that we are created to be servants. We only kind of touched on that briefly, but human beings are created to, to serve God, to serve creation, to serve one another, and the thing we kind of majored on is that we're made to be sons, and made to be children of God. Now those two things, servants and son, are not just relational things, they're not just how we relate to God and other people. Particularly in the Old Testament, uh, servants of God, servant of the Lord, or son of God were also royal titles. So, to be a servant and to be a son of the Father is actually uh, an expression of our position as rulers of creation under the Father. We're created with great uh, dignity and responsibility and privilege. That says the great human crisis, though, because that's not what we are, that's not the way we live in. This isn't clearer. Sorry about that. The great human crisis means, on one hand, as I say, instead of serving God, we're serving idols and self. So remember, if we don't worship God, we worship something else. If we're not devoted to Him, we'll be devoted to something else. And those things are idols, false gods. At Serving idols himself, then says, we need a new master. These things that we have become slaves to are idols; they need to be knocked over, pushed to the side, and we need to be restored to our true master. True master. And instead of being sons, we have forfeited the right to sonship. So we're outside the family, excluded from knowing the Father. So, what do we need? We need a son. We need the son to come and bring us back into the family. The ultimate outworking and the ultimate consequence, the ultimate punishment that we deserve for that, for our rebellion, is death. And we saw how death. Death is being outside the family, excluded from the Father's love, uh, forever. And that's the position that we're in now. I just want to, um, here's my Bible, there it is, right there. I want to just quickly answer a question that was written down, uh, which may not be answered in the course of the talks, but it is it's actually a really helpful, really helpful question to answer. The question is, how can we better understand how people were fairly saved before Jesus' coming and justification, removing the necessity of the 613 laws? Um, whoever wrote that, you know, you need to have slightly grammar a little bit. I, I think what they're saying is, um, h- how do we understand how people were saved in Old Testament times before Jesus came and did what he did at the cross? Um, but then also, why why don't we as Christians uh, now f- need to follow the 613 laws of the Old Testament? Um, we, we can sometimes maybe get the impression, maybe from reading the Bible, that there are kind of two ways of salvation. In the Old Testament, the way of salvation was you obey the laws, and if you obey the law, then you'll be saved. And then Jesus came... And you kind of tuck that one out and set up a new thing. So now the way that you're saved in the New Testament onwards is that you believe in Jesus. Okay. And, and we can sometimes have that impression. Especially when we read verses in the Old Testament where God says, you know, obey these laws and you will live. Um, you obey these laws and I will bless you. It kind of sounds like the Old Testament people worked hard to earn their salvation, whereas now in the New Testament, Uh, We just believe in Jesus. But we need to see that across all time, right from the very beginning, right from Adam and Eve, right through to now and in the future, uh, there's actually only one way that people are saved and that is if God saves them. Um, So, remember we were talking about the Israelites. They were there in Egypt in slavery. They couldn't do anything until God came and he rescued them, brought them out of Egypt, put them in the land, entered into a covenant with them and said, I am your God, you are my people, you belong to me, you are my treasured possession, I've rescued you, I've saved you. And then he gave them the law, not as a way of them getting themselves right with him or even maintaining their right standing He gave them the law as a way of expressing the righteousness that He would already given them. So here is the way that you as my precious holy chosen people whom I have saved here is the way that I want you to live that will display the wonders of my grace and my mercy towards you in saving you. So no Old Testament Jew was ever supposed to think if I obey all these laws, all six hundred and thirty of them right down to the very and hill, then somehow I will earn myself, earn, earn my way into God's favour. However, by the time of Jesus, that's the way they were saying it. The Pharisees were saying, you've got to obey the law, you've got to tithe your spices, you've got to do everything so precisely so you can Get yourself into God's favour and so you can keep yourself into God's favour by obeying the law. Uh, and that's why there's this big discussion right through the New Testament. No, you're not saved by by works. You're not saved by the law. You're saved by faith. You see, the, the natural response of a human heart when God comes to them and tells them that He has saved them, the natural response faith. God says, I've done this for you and our response is, aren't you amazing? Your grace is amazing. I'll trust you because I see how good you are to me. And so salvation has always been through faith from beginning to end. That's why Abraham is called the man of faith. Abraham believed God but credited to him righteousness. And Jesus said, Abraham Abraham rejoiced to see my day. So he was Abraham who simply trusted God and through simply trusting God on the basis of all that God had done for him and promised to him, his faith was actually in Jesus. And it was actually Jesus' death and resurrection that saved Abraham. 2,000 years before it actually happened. And so tonight we're actually going to flesh out that object of Abraham's faith, the one in whom Abraham trusted. So we've seen that humanity is in a crisis. We're made to be children of God, to be joyfully on about our father's business as sons. Instead, we worship and serve other gods. Whether it's false uh, religious systems, or whether it's just living for yourself, living a self-serving life, where you have become the idol that you have placed there in the place of God. Um, an idol... Oh, actually, I was going to show that, but I won't, we've got time... Sorry, watch your I will show it later if you want to see it. Fault, no, no, it's my fault because it's I took too long in asking the question. Um I'll just get to the right point. Yeah. An idol is anything that we uh, that we look to to give us what only God can give us. So you can see that happening in the Garden of Eden. Uh, God had given everything that the man and woman needed. He'd given them wisdom. He'd given them the knowledge of good and evil. He'd given them uh, food to eat. He'd given them joy and pleasure and fullness of life. Then we see Eve looks at the tree and says, Ah, oh, from that tree I can get wisdom and I can get pleasure and I can get food. So the things that God had already given them, that he had abundantly given them, she had said, I'm going to get that from someone in creation instead of from God. So that tree with the fruit on it was actually the very first idol in human history. Um, So anything in your life that you are depending upon, that uh, you are devoted to, that you are trying to receive from something that only God can give is an idol. A good way to find out if something is idolatrous or not is when it's taken away, and if you're angry, or you grieve, or your life falls apart when that thing is gone, that simply shows it's, it's just an idol. And sometimes God will just tear the idols out of our lives to say, "Look, you can't, you can't live for these things. You can't worship these things. Come back to me uh, and worship me instead." So our great need is to be reconciled and brought back into the family. And only the Son can do it. And the good news, the Gospel, is He's done it. The Son has done all that's needed to bring us back. In the first part of that Bible reading, we saw Paul reminding the Corinthians of the heart of their faith, the Gospel. He summed it up as Christ died for our sins, He was buried and raised to life on the third day and all of that was in line with what the scriptures had already said would happen Uh, a little while ago i i sat down and turned on channel 44. anyone watch channel 44? no okay um it's it's like community television so some of the stuff is pretty pretty lame but uh, the Islamic community in Adelaide have a show on Channel 44 called Message TV. And uh, it was just starting as I sat down, I thought oh, I'll watch this and see what they have to say. And basically the whole show was testimony. It was a testimony of a Scottish woman, young Scottish woman, who had reverted to Islam. See, Muslims believe that every person is born a Muslim And then we drift away, and so becoming a Muslim is just reverting back to your true religion. That's the way they understand it. Uh, But she, for about 45 minutes, she told her story of her journey uh, into Islam, of uh, converting to Islam, and then her journey of discovering what that all meant for her. Uh, What struck me about her story, and which made me really sad, The whole thing was presented in a very positive way. She was very happy about her journey. But what was sad was her entire story was about the things that she did. The things that she had to do in order to become a Muslim. And then the things she had to do in order to become a better Muslim. She said nothing about what Allah had done for her. It was all about what she had to do for Allah. All religions are about doing what you have to do to get in God's good books or to be saved or to be in heaven when you die. Christianity is all about what's been done, it's been done by Jesus. The gospel isn't good news. Oh, sorry, it is good news. The gospel is not advice. <laughs> we'll edit that bit out. We'll edit that bit out. Don't quote me, right? I've been quoted on a few things, but definitely not that one. The gospel isn't advice or instructions on how to live your life, or how to find your way to heaven, or how to uh, connect with God, or whatever. The gospel is the announcement of good news. That's been done. And those who have faith in Jesus and what he has done are brought into the Father's family. So, the next line in our creed reads I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, Christ isn't a surname, it's a title. Uh, I am James the Staff Worker. I'm not James Staff Worker. Staff Worker is a title that tells you what my position is and what I do. In the same way, Christ. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. And the Messiah in the Old Testament was the promised, chosen king that God would set up to establish his kingdom uh, in the earth forever. And this king would not only establish God's kingdom, but he would bring justice and peace to the ends of the earth. He would be the judge of the whole earth and he would bring peace. All of that was in fulfilment of the promise given to Abraham, at the very start of the story. I will bless you and through you I will bless every nation. So that was the role of the Messiah, to be the fulfilment of that promise blessing to every nation, every family on earth. Now as I said, uh, the title Son of God in the Old Testament was a symbolic title used of kings that signified their special relationship to God that enabled them to rule the people under his authority. It was used not just by the Jews, it was used by pagan nations as well, Son of God. But with Jesus, this title, Son of God, is not just symbolic. It's literal. He actually is the Son, God the Son, who has been sent as an ultimate expression, the ultimate expression of God's love for the world. Uh, he is the one and only, or, as we know in John 3:16, God sent His only begotten Son. He is the only true—can't uh, say flesh and blood, but you know—he's you know in that adoption. Picture, he's like the the actual son of the family rather than an adopted son. So Jesus has come, the son has come, he's clothed himself in our humanity, he's become one of us, and he has done for us what we are unable and unwilling to do for ourselves to save ourselves, to come back into that family. According to the plan, God the Son, stepped into our world, clothed himself in our humanity, fully God and fully human. He did what he did as a true human being. He wasn't kind of a superman. He went around with superpowers that enabled him to perform these miracles because he was God. Like he was actually a, a true human being and all the miracles that he did were signs that pointed to his identity as this Messiah, this promised chosen king. Uh, and all of, all of that he did, he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't kind of pull on his divine, infinite power of Son of God to zap all these miracles. He did it as a spirit-filled human being living as a true human being should. If you want to know what true humanity looks like, Just look at Jesus. He is the true human being. Our representative. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. So he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, which speaks of the fact he's fully God and truly God. But he's born of the Virgin Mary. He has a human mother. So he's also truly and fully human. And as a human being... He shared everything that it means to be human, right down to our mortality. You ever thought, what would have happened if just at the wrong moment Jesus had stepped out onto the road just as a, a stream of Roman chariots was tearing down the road and, and ran over him? What would have happened to him? Splat! He would have died. You know, he, wouldn't have, he wouldn't have had these superpowers where he was invincible and the horses just kind of shooting over him or whatever. You know, he was a true human being. He was mortal. He could be killed. We know he could be killed because he was killed eventually. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, So that by the grace of God, he might taste death everyone. Why did God the Son become a human being? So that he might share in everything of our humanity, including our death. Which brings us to the next one. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. Now a lot of people I've spoken to are intrigued by that line. He descended into hell. What does that mean? What was he doing when he descended into hell? And there's lots of kind theories about what that's all about. Did he uh, did he go to hell after he died to be punished? Is hell a place of punishment? Did he go there to beat up the devil? What what was what was going on? Well, one explanation for that phrase is that the word that word hell has found its way into this creed because. It came to us via Latin. Uh, When we hear the word hell today, we think place of punishment. But originally, it simply referred to the other side of the grave, the place of the dead. Uh, In Hebrew, in the Old Testament, it's the word Sheol. Uh, In Greek, it's Hades. So we see those two words appearing in the Old and New Testament. Uh, And the King James Bible. When the translators saw the word Sheol, they translated as hell. And so that's probably the way this, this has kind of worked its way into our English version of this, this creed. And so uh, some modern versions of the creed will simply say he, he went, he descended into the face of the dead, something like that. But I'm gonna look at it a little bit differently. I'm gonna kind of swap it around a bit, and I can do this because it's not the creed, this is the Bible, so I can change it a bit. Um, what I'm going to say is this phrase, he descended into hell, is a summary statement for what it, is, what it has just said about Jesus' death. So he descended into hell. What did that mean for Jesus to descend into hell? It means he suffered under Pontius Pilate he was crucified and was dead and was buried. All that Jesus went through through that whole Easter time, from the moment of his arrest in the garden through to the stone being rolled across the tomb, was Jesus going through hell for us as our substitute? When Jesus was hanging on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That wasn't... That wasn't where the, the forsakenness first started. He was there and he was crying about everything that had happened to him up to this point and everything that was about to happen. Uh, his betrayal by his friend, his close friend, his arrest, his illegal trial with false witnesses, the mocking and the beating his no. being handed over to the Gentiles who were enemies, of his own people, the Jews. He was publicly humiliated. He was hung between criminals. He was executed as a traitor. And he was cursed because he was hung on a tree. See, all of those things that happened to Jesus in the mind of the Old Testament and the Jewish people, all of those things were a sign that this man has been abandoned. My God, these are all the curses that would come upon a person who who practiced idolatry and who rebelled against God. These are the things that should happen to an evil man, not to a righteous man. So his cry, My God, My God, why have you abandoned me, is a culmination of all of those things combined. And here's the thing that's to me is mind-blowing. Remember how I said the sign of the Messiah the Messiah is that he won't be defeated by death. You will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. Here we have the Messiah the Son Jesus Christ his only Son our Lord hanging on a cross abandoned. I God. Then I take him down from the cross, so I put him in the tomb, I roll the stone over, and he's abandoned to the grave. As Jesus is in that grave, as Jesus was going through all of these things over those three days, he was bearing in himself the sin and the guilt of the human race. And then he died, the ultimate sign for God as a band of person, the wages of sin, death. And there is God's son lying in the tomb. Stone cold dead. There's another side though to all that happened over those three days. And incidentally, if you ever wondered how the maths how does the maths work? Jesus was crucified on Friday. He rose on Sunday, but he said the Son of Man will be in the in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish, three days and three nights. Hang on. Friday night, Saturday night, that's two nights, kind of two and a bit days. But if we understand that being in the belly of the earth was a an image of being in Sheol, being in the place of the dead, being in the hell. That started Thursday when Jesus was arrested, when he was sweating drops of blood, saying, Father, if possible, take this for suffering from me, but not my will, but your will be done. That's when it started, Thursday. So Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Thursday night, Friday night, the Mass works. There is another side to this, to these events, to this, this, the Messiah being abandoned to the grave. You see, all of that... All that Jesus went through over those three days and in fact his entire life was him being obedient to his Father, doing his Father's will to the very end, to the point of laying down his life in obedience to his Father. The Son in whom the Father delighted had done his Father's will to the very end. And so he gave himself over Place the full wrath of the Father that we deserve in our place and the Father looked at that and said, My oh Son, I delight in you and you have obeyed me to the very end. That in the Father's eyes, that was the most beautiful act in all creation. His beloved Son joyfully and willingly obeying him to the very end. So in the cross we see two extremes. We see the full extreme of human evil and we see the full extreme of God's justice but also God's grace and mercy. So when the sun turns up, we reject him and we nail him to a tree. The greatest criminal act in all human history. And we're complicit in that too because if any of us were there in that crowd on that day, we would have filled out crucifying, crucifying. The, the ultimate act of human evil is that when God comes to live among us, we put him to death. But then it's also God's ultimate justice. At the same time, this action done by evil men was actually foreordained and planned by the Father. That was the plan right from the beginning, remember? From before creation, the plan was that the Son would come in and be one of us and would redeem us in order to bring us into the family. Remember I talked about God's God's goal for creation is a creation full of creatures made in the image of the Son. He would participate in this divine love by being filled with the Spirit, and enjoy the same love that the Father and the Son share. That goal was fulfilled as Jesus went to the cross to redeem sinners. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. We still crucified and killed him by the hands of all his men, but behind that was this plan of God still rolling out to bring people to himself. And in this, this plan, God, the grace of God is shown to be so magnificent. It's not just that he gives us something we don't deserve, but in the face of our evil, hard-hearted rebellion, he forgives us, he wipes the slate clean, and he adopts us into his family. And we sing that hymn, Amazing Grace, How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Are happy about the grace bit? Are we happy about the wretch bit? If there's any way that grace is deserved, if there's any smidgen of goodness in us that deserves His grace, it's not grace. wages. What makes grace amazing is that the least deserving is given the greatest privilege, a rebellious, Sinner who deserves nothing but wrath ends up adopted as a child of God. That's grace. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus' death was the defeat of death. By taking our, our sin and our guilt and our condemnation, he took away the thing that is that causes death. The wages of sin is death. And he, he took the death away. It's no longer a debt that we need to pay. If our faith is in Jesus, the Messiah... His dying and His rising. We understand that he, he, not just, he didn't just beat death for Himself, He beat death for us and anyone who trusts in Him. And His resurrection was the confirmation of what His death had accomplished. Always in the New Testament, Jesus' resurrection is linked with His position now as the King of Kings, seated at the Father's right hand. Uh, In a monarchy, uh, I don't know if it happens now in in England or back in those days, uh, at a formal function, the king would be there on his throne. His firstborn son, the heir to the throne, would always be at his right hand. He was literally the king's right hand man. As the son, he would administer the kingdom with the full authority of his father. If you came face to face with the son... It was just as if he come face to face with the Father himself. So he would have this authority uh, sitting at his Father's right hand. And so that's why Jesus would say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. No one comes to the Father but not by me. Jesus is the Father's official way by which he not only makes... Enemies into citizens, but he makes citizens into adopted children. Do you ever have a sense of I mean, fear and trepidation when you think about the final judgment? You stand before God, or stand before Jesus, and you judge? We all will. Every single human being who's ever lived will stand before Jesus as the judge. Have you ever thought, oh, no, my secret sins? Remember those ones I forgot to confess? Will be kind of write them across the sky and everyone will see them and they'll realize how bad a person I am? You will stand before the judge of the whole earth. And he alone is the one who has the authority to cast rebels out of the kingdom, to cast rebellious sons out of the family. But this judge. Is the Judge who laid down His life for you. He took your sin and your guilt in your place. This Judge of all the earth is the one who says, "I've borne all your sin, all your guilt." So when you stand before Him, if you if you have fled to Him for refuge, here's the judgment that you will hear. Welcome. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the hope that those people in Hebrews we read about, that's the hope they had. One day they will stand before God and He will say, Welcome, welcome. come in, come into my household. Desk. There are so many rooms, there's room for you to come in and sit at the table. and and eat with me and be part of the family. To this Lord of grace, this uh, Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who has given Himself with deep, uh, deep love for us, He calls for a response. And it's a response of repentance and faith. Simply saying, yep, I know I deserve wrath, I know I deserve to be outside forever. That's true. God is right about that. I'm wrong about thinking that I'm okay, that I'm good, that I'll be alright. That's repentance. And faith is simply saying, and Jesus, see, you've done it. You've done everything that's needed for me to be back in the family, so I'm just going to put everything into your hands because you've saved me and I'm going to trust you. You don't need to uh, jump through any boots. You don't need to um, pray a prayer or walk to the front or slip up your hand or whatever. Just simply trust Jesus who bore your sins and brings you to the Father. Now you might know um, that you're someone who actually needs to see what Jesus has done for you. Uh, it might be that through the camp so far through the thoughts you've heard or the songs you've sung or conversations you've had that uh, yeah, you just need to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, take away my sin bring me into the Father's family, the Father's house um, and it's just as simple as saying saying that it may be that you, you need to you know, express that in the words of a prayer or it might be that just in your heart right now you can say, yeah, yeah I see it. God has done it and I'm going to going to receive it. Uh, it might be that you need to take a few moments at the end of this session maybe just to get that through and maybe pray uh, and uh, there will be some leaders and staff workers who will be available after this session. If you want to just chat more, if you want to clarify things more uh, or if you actually think, yeah I actually need someone to help me, just take that step of putting my trust in Jesus.